0: Good evening. My name is Brian Parks, and I'm the senior pastor here at Covenant Hope Church. Let me add my welcome to that which Mark gave to you earlier. Two years ago, I signed up for a service called 23andMe. They mailed me a a little tube. I spit in it. I sealed it up. I mailed it off. And several weeks later, they sent me back a report telling me where all my ancient ancestors were from in the world. That's right. They showed me a map and showed me, based on my DNA, where my ancestors originated from. It's fascinating to think about. Now, if you looked at my report, you could probably guess, just by looking at me, where I might be from originally, all my ancestors. That's right, mostly European. Yep, Northwestern European, British and Irish, French and German a little bit, getting further down in the percentages, Scandinavian and broadly Northwestern European, Eastern European a fraction of a percentage, and broadly European 0.1%. And, you know, when they give you this report, they're talking about your ancestors from not just a few decades ago, they're talking about hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years ago. Now that's easy to understand, again, if you look at me and think about who I am, that makes a lot of sense, but I just recently got an update from 23andMe. And when I opened it up, to my surprise, I find out that I'm .8 percent North African I'm 0.3% Anatolian, that's current day Turkey, and I'm 0.2% of Arab Egyptian and Coptic Egyptian background. No wonder I feel so comfortable here in the Middle East. 1.3% from all these places that I would have never expected. You know, I think if you ask each one of us, are there people in the world that you're like and people in the world that you're, dislike, that you're not like? You, you would say, yes, that's true. There's people that I think of myself, oh, I'm kind of like them, but I'm really not like them. And when I saw this 1.3% from North, northern Africa, I thought, wow, I don't think I'm like them. Am I? And yet, if you're a Christian, you know that all of us are alike in the most fundamental way. We're all made in the image of God. We're all designed to know God, to experience fellowship with Him, to represent Him on the earth, to be like Him unlike anything else in creation. All people have those commonalities. If if the major event that happened in our passage had never happened, apart from the sovereign working of God, you and I would not be Christians. We would not be Christians because at the time that Jesus walked the earth, the Jews of His day had misunderstood largely the Old Testament Scriptures and they thought of themselves as special, not just special because God had chosen them, chosen to show His, His favor and, and put His grace and mercy on them, but he, they believed that they were fundamentally different. They were better, they actually thought. If this major event that we're about to read about had never happened, you and I wouldn't be Christians. There would be no Covenant Hope Church or, or any churches really here. Or in your home countries, probably. No churches. I might be an atheist. You might be Hindu. Others might be worshiping tribal deities. Who knows exactly what we would believe about life and God, about good and evil, but we would not be Christians. That's for sure. When we look at this passage, we see what is probably one of the most important turning points in the history of the world, when the gospel went to the Gentiles. That's what's in this passage. And the main point that Luke wants to point us to in this passage this evening is this, God teaches us to tell the gospel to all people for their salvation. God teaches us to tell the gospel to all people for their salvation. Now, the passage that Mark read for you earlier is really just the middle portion of the passage that I'm going to preach to you about this evening. We're actually starting in chapter 9, verse 32. If you have your Bible, if you'll open to Acts 30, uh, chapter 9, verse 32. Acts chapter 9, verse 32. If you have the uh, bulletin on your phone, the entire text is printed there. Last week, we saw what was probably the most dramatic conversion of perhaps anyone in the Bible, this week a major turning point in the history of the world. The last verse that we covered in last week's passage explained how the dramatic conversion of the church's enemy, Saul, had brought peace and a period of growth to the church throughout all of the regions surrounding Jerusalem. And when that happened, the apostles who had originally stayed in Jerusalem when the persecution broke out back in chapter 8, they began to travel to those regions around Jerusalem and to share the gospel. In verses 32 through 43, we see what describes the apostle Peter's evangelistic ministry in two specific places, a place called Lydda, which is between Jerusalem and the Mediterranean coast, and then a place called Joppa, which is actually on the coast, Lida and Joppa. And in both places, the Lord enabled Peter to perform at least one dramatic miracle that set the stage for him to share the good news of the gospel. And see, most of the people in those towns put their faith in Christ. The first point in the sermon this evening is miracles teach the gospel's power. Miracles teach the gospel's power. And that covers verses 32 through 43, right up to chapter 10. Lydda is the first city that's mentioned. And Luke tells us that Peter met a paralyzed man named Aeneas there who had been bedridden for eight years. Look at verse 34 with me. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. rise and make your bed. And immediately he rose, and all the residents of Lida and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. Aeneas' healing is prob- will probably remind you of the kind of miracles, of course, that Jesus did. It's very similar to the time that Jesus healed the paralyzed man who was lowered through the roof of the house, that's recorded in Mark chapter two. And it's also much like the healing of the paralyzed man at the pool in John chapter 5. Peter commanded Aeneas to rise and make your bed, just as Jesus had done with very similar words in those two different instances recorded in the Gospels. But Luke wants us to know the effect that this miracle had in the city. The residents of Lydda and the other nearby town, Sharon, turned to the Lord. They gave their lives to Christ. They repented and they believed in Christ. And then the Christians in nearby Joppa heard that the apostle was in Lydda, and so they sent for him when one of the disciples named Dorcas, who was a part of the church there, had died. Peter came and miraculously raised her from the dead Again, the miracle is reminiscent of a miracle that Jesus had performed as recorded in Mark chapter 5. I don't know if you'll remember, but Jesus raised the daughter of Jairus, the synagogue ruler. Just like Jesus had done, Peter put the mourners out of the room and called to the little girl to arise. In fact, in that passage, Jesus says, talitha koum, and here... Peter says, Tabitha arise, which is the same thing, almost, just a few letters different. And the same way it had in Lydda, the rising of Dorcas led to the church in Joppa to grow through many conversions. Many people gave their lives to Christ. Look at verse 42. It says, and it became known throughout all Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. Luke wants us to be reminded The Apostle Peter was an authentic disciple of Jesus. He's doing many of the same things of Jesus. He's patterning his ministry after that of Jesus. He had learned from Jesus, of course. And he had been filled with the Spirit that Jesus had poured out on him in Acts chapter 2. And now he was doing the same kinds of works that Jesus had done. And all of that led to people hearing the gospel and entering the kingdom of God through faith in Christ. Jesus' ministry often began with miracles, but it always centered on His teaching. His miracles were signposts pointing to His gospel message. And the same is true for Peter. Dramatic miracles opened the way for the gospel preaching, which Peter must have done in those places in order for people to understand how to repent and believe in the Christ. Now, that's quite different than the typical miracle workers that we encounter today who gather crowds through their healing crusades, isn't it? Their focus is so oftentimes on the healings and the miracles themselves, Or perhaps on the riches that they promise for those who have enough faith, perhaps. But preaching the gospel was the apostles' goal. And if you consider all of the examples of effective preaching that are described in the entire book of Acts, only about half of them are accompanied by a miracle. The gospel proclaimed is the goal of gospel ministry. Salvation for many is what we pray for. And unless God has given you or me the gift of miracles, then we should focus on sharing the gospel. Of course, there's nothing wrong with praying for healing. We should do that. And the elders of Covenant Hope Church would welcome an invitation from you if you're sick to come and pray for you. We would love to do that. We believe in the power of God to heal. The most important component of ministry is gospel proclamation. We want to follow the pattern of Jesus and Peter. Proclaiming the gospel and praying for people to have saving faith in Christ is our end goal as a church. We want to make disciples. Are you praying that the Lord would give us more conversions through the ministry of this church? Oh, I I beg of you, pray for that every week. Pray for the Lord to save people in our services, through our members as they share the gospel in their workplace or with their friends and colleagues. Pray for conversions. Peter is the chief apostle doing ministry in the pattern set by Jesus by the power of the Spirit. And that is crystal clear from these last verses in chapter 9. And yet, the Lord still had important things to teach Peter before Christ's plans for the gospel to go to the ends of the earth could take place. Who is the gospel for? If we had asked Peter here at the end of chapter 9, his answer would have been the nation of Israel, God's chosen people. But God's answer to that question was different. And Peter needed the Lord to teach him a new gospel lesson And he began to do just that right there in Joppa. The second point this evening is God teaches Peter a gospel lesson. God teaches Peter a gospel lesson, and we see that in verses 1 through 35 of chapter 10. Immediately, the scene in chapter 10 shifts to the coastal city of Caesarea, and there we meet a man named Cornelius, He was a Roman centurion. He would have been in charge of a hundred soldiers. He was Italian. And he was a man who had a good reputation among the Jews for being a person of good character. He feared God, it says in our passage. He was devout, what most people would have maybe called religious. He prayed regularly to Yahweh, the God of the Jews. He gave money to others generously but he was a Gentile. It's hard to grasp the kind of religious, cultural, ethnic chasm there was between Jews and Gentiles. Jews considered Gentiles unclean. They wouldn't eat with them. They wouldn't greet them. They wouldn't have entered their homes or socialized with them. Jews considered the Gentiles dogs, and they worked hard to stay separate from them. Now, as I mentioned before, this was a twisting of what God actually taught in the Old Testament. Yes, the Jews were to be different. They were to be separate from the Gentiles. But the Old Testament repeatedly hinted that God's kindness and mercy would eventually be shown to the Gentiles as well. The promise that God had given Abraham was that through his seed, all the families of the earth would be blessed, not just Jews. The Old Testament testified that the Messiah would come to rule all the nations, not just Israel. But sinfully inspired traditions had hidden the truth which the Old Testament really showed. Cornelius, the unclean Gentile centurion, received a vision from an angel instructing him to send and bring back Peter from Joppa, and so Cornelius obeys. Now, as Cornelius' men make their way to Joppa, Peter too receives a vision, and he's on the roof of the house of Simon the Tanner, and something like a sheet is let down in front of him, which has all sorts of unclean food displayed on it. Rise, Peter. Kill and eat are the instructions from God. Look at Peter's response beginning in verse 14 and continuing in 15. But Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him again a second time, What God has made clean do not call common. Three times Peter received this command to eat unclean food, something he'd never done before in his life. Now, you remember that Peter denied the Lord three times on the night before Jesus was crucified, and after the resurrection, Jesus commanded him three times to feed my sheep. Some of Peter's Peter's biggest lessons from the Lord require repetition at least three times. Peter would not have missed that fact. In verses 17 through 35, then, they give us details of how these two visions led Peter to go and visit Cornelius, a man he would have never sought out, much less entered into his home, and the Lord helps Peter along the way. In verse 19, the Spirit urges him to go with the Gentile messengers sent by Cornelius. And when Peter finally enters Cornelius' home something radical for Peter, he finds that the house is full of Gentiles. And of course, Cornelius falls down to worship him, but Peter has been getting the message from the Lord. He's been figuring it out. Perhaps on the walk to Caesarea, he began to understand what the Lord was telling him, what the Lord wanted to teach him. He corrects Cornelius' posture of worship, and he tells him, I too am a man. Peter was unwilling to be considered a god, and he was also unwilling to treat Cornelius like a dog. And in verse 28, Peter announces what he's figured out. Look at the second half of verse 28. He shares what the Lord has been teaching him, but God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. He's getting it. He's understanding. But there's still more. There's still more to learn from the Lord because he asks, I ask then why you sent for me. Peter doesn't know why he's there yet. And so Cornelius explains the vision that he received and ends with a phrase that perhaps triggers Peter's understanding. Cornelius says, we are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. Peter would have known that the Lord had above all commanded him to preach the gospel and make disciples. Verse 34 begins, so Peter opened his mouth. But what had to happen before was for the Lord to open his mind and his heart to answer the question, who is the gospel for? When he started in Joppa, he would have answered it differently. But now Peter understands. He says as much in verses 34 and 35, truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation anyone who fears Him and does what is right, is acceptable to Him. One thing we can learn from this passage is that God is teaching Peter and that we need to learn how to read our Bibles well. There was a time in Israel's history when they were forbidden from eating foods that God called unclean, and God was serious about that. It wasn't optional. But now that the Christ had come, things changed dramatically. Peter is learning that the food laws of the Old Testament were no longer in effect under the new covenant of Jesus Christ. And that means that when we read the Old Testament, we need to understand what covenant relationship the people of that time had with God in the passage where we're reading. In order to understand what was what God had been requiring of them specifically. So, when we read Old Testament laws and promises, we have to ask, what did it mean for them? And and now, what do they mean for us, given that we live under the new covenant cut by Jesus Christ? So, for example, the sacrificial laws of Leviticus apply to us differently than they did to the Israelites of Moses' day. We need to remember that when we read the Bible. It's very, very important. Another thing that's clear from this passage is how God is the one who is ultimately leading and guiding the spread of the gospel. This important moment in church history took two visions to two different men in two different cities, miraculously brought together with the Spirit's prompting all along the way in order for it to happen. It wouldn't have happened naturally. The Lord is the one who gives missionary vision to His people. The Lord is the one who opens doors of access where there are none. The Lord plans and leads His people to spend money and make sacrifices and dedicate their lives to taking the gospel to the nations. When the church takes the gospel to the nations, we are being led by God. Now, if you're not a Christian, you're welcome here. Every time we gather, we gather every Saturday evening now during COVID at least at 7.30 to 8.30. Do you wonder sometimes why Christians would try to share the gospel with people of other faiths? Does that maybe seem arrogant to you? Do you see in this passage that it's God's idea that we share the gospel with people who believe things other than we do? Who is the gospel for? The gospel is for anyone and everyone. That's what this passage is teaching us. It's for all human beings. The gospel rules out racism, nationalism, tribalism, and casteism. None of those things have any place in the hearts and minds of Christians. Are there people that you believe don't deserve the gospel? Maybe people that you believe it's not worth the time and effort to actually take the gospel to them? Are there any of those isms, racism or casteism or tribalism, lurking in your heart? Oh, brothers and sisters, if if we would say that It's possible for us to be guilty of any sin that the Bible talks about. Why would we rule that sin out as a possibility in our hearts? Brothers and sisters, we need to be on the lookout for this sin in our hearts. We need to look to the Lord to root it out with His grace and mercy. We need to look to the Lord to change our minds and our view of all other people. Peter was the leader of the apostles, the one who had confessed Christ first, the one on whom Jesus had said He would build His church. And yet, Peter, the Peter, had lots to learn about the gospel from his Lord and Savior. But the Lord was gracious, and He led Peter to it. We too should have humble attitudes, eager to learn what the Lord wants to teach us, Oh, brothers and sisters, it's so possible for each and every one of us to have blind spots in our understanding of how the good news applies to us and to those around us. It's possible for us to have those blind spots such that we need to be given sight by our gracious Lord Jesus so that our eyes are opened. led by the Lord to a room full of Gentiles, eager to hear a message from God. Peter then teaches the gospel to Gentiles. That's the third point this evening. Peter teaches the gospel to Gentiles. We see that in verses 36 through 48. One thing that stands out about Peter's presentation of the gospel is that even though the audience is dramatically different than the people he's been sharing the gospel with, his message stays essentially the same. Did you notice that? Verses 36 through 39a is Peter's overview of the life of Christ. He emphasizes that God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He recounts that he, along with the other apostles, were witnesses of all that Jesus did. In verse 39b is Peter's statement about the crucifixion of Jesus and His death. His reference to Him, to those uh, people who crucified Him, hanging Him on a tree is a clear reference to the curse that Christ bore for us on the cross. Verses 40 through 42 are Peter's overview of the resurrection of Christ and his commissioning of the apostles to preach and testify that He is Lord of all. And then in verse 43, Peter explains the appropriate faith-filled response to this good news about Jesus. Everyone who believes in Him receives forgiveness of sins through His name. There it is, the life, death, resurrection of Jesus, and how one can receive what Christ offers. That's Peter's gospel for the Gentiles. That was the gospel then, And that is still the gospel now. It's not changed. 2,000 years have not required a change in the gospel. Is this the gospel message that you understood when you became a Christian? Did it center on Jesus? Is this a message that you could explain to your colleagues? Is this a message that you could explain to your children or even a stranger? If you've never heard this message that Christ is the Lord of all and that He lived, that He died on the cross in our place, that He rose from the dead to declare us forgiven of our sins and our rebellion against God so that we could have peace with God forever, you can turn away from your sin and receive Him as Lord even now. tonight, in this room, trust in Jesus. Don't let anything stop you from turning to Christ. The gospel message should not fundamentally change no matter who we're sharing it with, whether it's being shared with a businessman in Tokyo, a herdsman in Botswana, children in Chile, or widows in Tajikistan it always needs to focus on the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus, and the repentance and the faith in Him that brings new life in Him. Language will be different, of course. Some words might be different here and there. Accompanying truths from the Scripture might be taught to add weight to the gospel, but the message should never change. Now, some raise the question of whether or not men like Cornelius, who are described as God-fearers in Scripture, need to hear the gospel. Maybe you read that description of Cornelius earlier in chapter 10, and you thought, now why would he need the gospel? He seems like a good guy. And those people would argue that people can be saved apart from hearing the gospel, And yet, if anyone could merit salvation apart from the gospel, wouldn't it have included Cornelius? He was pious, he was devout, he prayed and was generous, and yet the Lord thought it necessary to send Peter to him to share the good news of Christ. The Lord went through all of that trouble to get the gospel to Cornelius. No one is saved apart from hearing the good news of Jesus. That is the truth which the Bible speaks clearly over and over again, and which is the foundation of all missionary endeavors. To make a great error and to judge that people will be saved apart from the knowledge of Christ and the gospel erases all of the need for missions. It disappears. Why go? Now this is a view of God and humanity that will not make us popular in the world, brothers and sisters but we must remain faithful to God's Word, to God's truth. No one is saved apart from hearing the gospel and believing in Christ. Don't let the world try to shame you into believing otherwise. Peter had received surprise after surprise after surprise from the Lord, and yet there was one more left. Look at verse 44 with me. And while Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the Word, and the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. That God would pour out the Holy Spirit on Gentiles blew Peter and his Jewish Christian partners away. They couldn't believe it. The mark of full inclusion into the church of God is the gift of the Holy Spirit. Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles, would many years later write to the church in Corinth in chapter 12, verses 12 and 13, For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one Spirit, We were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one Spirit. And with the baptism of the Spirit, the privilege of being baptized in water should be given. And so Peter commanded that they all be baptized. The basis that we have for taking the gospel to all people is that they're made in the image of God. God shows no partiality and can and will save anyone who trusts in Christ. The basis of our unity in the church is that we who have believed are filled with the same Spirit that unites us all to Christ. From time to time, I've mentioned experiences that I've been privileged to have, which God has used to open my eyes more fully to the truth that the gospel is for all people and those in Christ share an eternal bond in the Spirit. I had a chance to visit East Africa a long time ago, back in the 80s. I was in Kenya and I had the opportunity on a Sunday to travel down into the Maasai Mara and attend a church comprised mainly of Maasai tribesmen. This was a church under a tree. There was no building. There were about 10 or 12 Maasai there with us. We maybe added three or four people to the group. They sang songs in Maasai. They heard a sermon in Maasai. There were testimonies there. I remember distinctly three women who were married to the same man who were all testifying that they were praying for their husband to come to Christ. And it struck me as we worshiped under that tree that I had more in common with those three Maasai women than I did with friends who looked just like me and talked just like me and live just like me back in the United States of America. More in common with them. My bond with them is eternal. When we share the Spirit, we are bound to Christ together. And all people are deserving of hearing the gospel of Jesus Christ so that they can have the opportunity. To repent and trust in Christ as well. Oh, brothers and sisters, God teaches us to tell the gospel to all people for their salvation. Let's pray to that end and work to that end. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise You that You sent people to us to share the good news of Jesus Christ. Lord, we thank You for this This amazing, pivotal event that we've just read about, which if it had not happened and apart from Your sovereign will, we would not know You. We would not be trusting in Jesus even now. But You led Your people through the Spirit to share the gospel with all the nations for their salvation. We praise You for that, Lord. In Christ's name, amen.